Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Many contemporary spiritual movements are characterized by denial of material pleasures, subjugation of the self, and focus on transcendence. A spiritual program that cultivates embodied satisfaction is often seen as inauthentic and fraudulent. These public understandings of new religious movements are part of the reason why the Indian guru Bhagavan Sri Rajneesh, or Osho, is so controversial. In Zorba the Buddha, Sex, Spirituality, and Capitalism in the Global Osho Movement. Hugh Urban explores the Osho Movement as a case study on the intersection of religion, capitalism, sexuality, and globalization. Urban traces the social context of the Osho Rajneesh transnational religious movement as it extends from its local origins in India, across to America, and back to South Asia. He puts textual and ethnographic sources to use in producing a rich account of Osho, his followers, and the social worlds that shape them. At its height, Osho's archetype of Zorba the Buddha represents the shifting attitudes of publics towards the body, physical pleasure, and material consumption. In our conversation, we discuss the social and political atmosphere of post-independence India, national patterns of socialism, spiritual sexuality and neo-tantra, New Age debates, questions of religion and law, the 1980s Oregon utopian community, global capitalism, and Osho's legacy and the continuation of the movement. Thanks for listening to New Books in Religion. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson. Without any further delay, here's my conversation with Hugh Urban. Welcome, Hugh. Uh, thanks for joining us. Welcome back to New Books in Religion. How are you doing? Great. Thanks so much for having me. Now, uh, we had you on for your book about Scientology a, a while back, uh, so some people might remember a little bit about your background and um, the types of things you're into. Um, however, this is a, a related in many ways, but also a very, very different book. Um, it would be great to hear about... Um, how you got interested in such a wide variety of uh, topics, uh, approaches um, in terms of the study of religion. Uh, I think, you know, as someone who's a big fan of your work, I see lots of uh, kind of threads that run through all of them. Um, but perhaps what drew you into the study of religion and as your work has developed, um, what have been those kind of unifying threads for you? Okay, yeah. So I've always really been interested in religion. I grew up in a fairly religious family myself. My grandfather and uncle and great-grandfather were all priests in the Episcopal Church, and my father was quite religious. So I was sort of surrounded by religion growing up. And then when I was in college, I did a semester abroad. I did the Antioch University Buddhist Studies program. That's what got me really interested in things South Asian, which has been a recurring interest throughout my life. And then the interest in new religions like Scientology, etc., came a bit later, um, and so I've done 
stuff on a variety of different new religions, but you, I think you're right to point out that there are connections between the various things I've done, even though they're kind of, they might appear to be all over the map, but a couple of connections are interests in the role of secrecy in religion. That's been a theme of mine from the beginning. Interest in the economic side of religion that comes out in both the Scientology book, thinking about the economic side of Scientology's structure and practices, and also in this new project on Osho or Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh and the way in which the movement became implicated in patterns of capitalism over the last 50 years. So those are kind of the broad themes that I think run throughout most of my work. I mean, there are others that we can talk about too. Sure. One of the other things I really appreciate about your work, even though I don't work on new religious movements or South Asia, um, is you uh, always kind of pay a close attention to uh, methodological, theoretical questions that I think are uh, very useful across, um, you know, the field of religious studies in general. Um, were there particular moments or uh, mentors of yours that kind of, uh, you know, helped foster or cultivate those kind of interests and the attention you, you pay to those questions? Yeah, I think one of the biggest influences on my work theoretically has been Bruce Lincoln, who is one of my teachers at the University of Chicago. And I think one thing I really got most from Lincoln is paying close attention to historical context. And so really all of my work has really tried to look closely at how these different religious groups have related to, responded to, and influenced the historical, social, economic contexts around them. And not simply being reflections of those contexts, but often being key drivers of those contexts as well, which is a theme in the, the Zorba the Buddha book. Mm-hmm. Um, one, one other kind of, uh, I, I guess it's selfish in, in my sense, as a junior scholar, uh, you know, I'm envious of your, your ability to produce so much great scholarship. Do, do you have any tricks or uh, tips on uh, how to how to write so well and uh, in such uh, volume? How to write well? I don't know that I write well. I, start, I, I guess <laughs> I write in volume. But <laughs> I'm, not sure I'm not sure they're the same thing. Um, I think I've been lucky in getting lots of time off and getting research grants. So I think that's key. Just keep applying for different grants so that you have the time to write and to travel and to go to India or to special collections. That's a huge part of it. And then the other thing I would say is if if you're passionate about it and and you're fascinated by a question and you care about it, it makes the writing easy. So I've really tried to only write about things that I'm really interested in and care about, and so it makes it fun and something that I enjoy doing rather than a chore. I don't really have any tips beyond that, I'm afraid. Get up um, early in the morning. Get, get up early yeah. the morning. <laughs> um, now, this book, uh, Zorba the Buddha, uh, you focus on this figure, Osho. Um, some people might be familiar with him. Uh, others probably are not. Um, can you kind of just give us, set us up with a brief intro to him? Uh, how is he perhaps usually understood by the Western mm-hmm. public? Well, most Americans today remember him, if they remember him, as the infamous Rolls-Royce guru from the 1980s. He made national headlines when his group, created one of the largest and most successful utopian communes in central Oregon from 1981 to 1985. And he was all over the media because he also really uh, liked to display his wealth and didn't have a problem with the combination of wealth and spirituality. It was one of his key themes. 
And so he was known as the Rolls Royce guru and because of his fleet of 93 Rolls Royces and also as the sex guru because uh, it was a very body and sex friendly form of spirituality. So that's how most Americans today probably remember him. And I actually first came across Osho or as he was known then Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh when I was a teenager watching uh, 60 Minutes. There was a segment on the Oregon commune. And I still remember him saying, I sell enlightenment, I sell contentment. And even then, that's, that's, uh, that's uh, stood out to me. And I kept coming back to him throughout my academic career. I wrote one of my first articles as a graduate student about him. And then finally, I decided I would return to the project with this book because it brought together so many of my interests in Indian religions and new religions and uh, economics and all of that. And what I'm arguing in the book is that he's a much more interesting character than just some odd anecdote from Reagan's America in the 1980s, but rather he offers really key insights into much broader religious, cultural, and economic shifts that took place both in India and the United States over the last six decades, really from the 1960s to the present. And then beyond that, also really challenge us to rethink the problems of religion and globalization how globalization works and the role that religion plays within it. Yeah, and I think this is this is one of the really valuable contributions the book makes. Um, so you argue uh, in part that this Osho uh, Rajneesh movement uh, is kind of an epicenter of globalization. Um, and you use it as a way to kind of critique some of the, the previous scholarship. So uh, could you talk a little bit about what the general characteristics of scholarship on transnational religious movements and then how your your book contributes to these discussions about globalization and religion? Yeah, I don't want to overgeneralize too much, but I think a lot of the work on religion and globalization that's out there to date has focused mostly either on forms of Islam, typically radical Islam, or on global forms of Christianity, such as global Catholicism and Pentecostalism. And what I'm arguing, following some other scholars like Tulasi Srinivas, is that globalization isn't simply something that comes from the West and flows to the rest, but rather it also emerges from India and other parts of Asia, and it's really emanating from multiple nodes right across the world. And the other key point I want to make is that religious movements aren't just reflections or responses to globalization, but are often key drivers of globalization. And you see this in movements like the, the Osho movement because it brought together not just spirituality and capitalism, but through flows of tourism and movements of people from the U.S. and Europe to India and then from India to the U.S. Um, it's actually a, a key part and driver of the flows of globalization. So I'm suggesting that religious groups like these are sort of key nodes in Arjuna Padurai sense, or what I call hyphal knots, sort of places where these flows of people and spiritual ideas and capital come together and then sort of fruit or flower into these really interesting new uh, movements and forms. Now, uh, another kind of key theme, and this might get uh, kind of detailed uh, later on as we get into some of the meat, but the movement embodies uh, what you call spiritual logic of late capitalism. So could you set us up by uh, what, what do you mean by this? Um, and what do you think uh, we can learn about broader global currents 
um, in terms of capitalism uh, when we look at the, the Osho movement? Well, that phrase, spiritual logic of late capitalism, I'm sort of playing on Frederick Jameson's famous characterization of postmodernism as the cultural logic of late capitalism. And I'm, I'm talking about the spiritual logic of late capitalism in the sense that in late capitalism, or what now is more commonly called neoliberalism, the logic of the market, the logic of consumerism, tends to be expanded to all aspects of culture, including religion. And one thing that really drew me to the Osho Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh movement is that he was one of the first to make this explicit and not only to bring together spirituality and capitalism, but to actually proclaim it openly as that's what he was doing. And that's really embodied in the ideal of Zorba the Buddha as a, an enlightened being who would bring together the spirituality of the Buddha with the um, materialism and sensuality of Zorba the Greek. Now, um, there's also kind of uh, two sets of kind of literature on Osho, I guess, uh, that you lay out in terms of thinking about your sources. Um, so you, you look at kind of both these, uh, these two ends of the spectrum in terms of kind of textual in the broadest sense of the word, sources, um, but you also kind of bring in uh, ethnographic types of sources, I guess we could call them. Um, could you talk a little bit about the, the spectrum of sources that you have um, and how you incorporated things uh, like ethnographic evidence um, mm -hmm. and then talk a little bit about the, the challenges of some of these sources? Yeah, I think the greatest challenge is simply the amount of material there is Osho himself was incredibly prolific. He didn't really write, but he, he was constantly giving talks that were all recorded. So there's a mountain of literature of his own discourses. Then there's a mountain of literature by disciples, and then mountain of literature from ex-disciples. Um, then the archival material is staggering. I was uh, in Oregon, spent a good chunk of time using the collections at the Oregon Historical Society and University of Oregon. And there are just hundreds, hundreds of boxes, literally, of legal files, ephemera, um, everything under the sun, newsletters. Um, and then on top of that, there's the ethnographic material from both current and former disciples. So the biggest challenge for me was simply wading through all of that. It was, it was actually incredibly fun to work on, but simply putting it together into a a kind of coherent narrative that not only made sense of it, but did justice to the many different perspectives on this complex character and movement. That was probably the biggest challenge. Um, now, the the way you lay out the book, you you take kind of a historical approach, as you mentioned uh, earlier, is kind of how you uh, do most of your work. Um, so for Osho, he he really starts to emerge in 1950s uh, India. Uh, as a guru, um, can you tell us about the early career of Rajneesh and how was he received in that context? Yeah, so I tried to situate him in the context of India in the decades just after independence because it, it struck me as significant that his enlightenment experience, what he describes as a kind of nirvana, Buddha-like experience, took place in 1953, just a few years after India's independence. And this is a time when... India as a new nation is really trying to navigate between communism and capitalism, between tensions between Hindus and Muslims. And I think um, Rajneesh in his early years and his early 
uh, talks really reflect all of that. But he also positioned himself from the beginning as what he called himself as India's most dangerous guru. His teachings were deliberately radical, iconoclastic, parodic. They're often very, very funny, but often in a, a pretty um, sometimes vicious way. Um, particularly going after figures like Mahatma Gandhi, Nehru, other national icons. And so he was controversial from the outset, but he also began to be embraced and patronized, by, especially by businessmen in Mumbai and other cities who were kind of attracted to that more um, provocative, cutting edge and iconoclastic style of teaching. Um, now, uh, as time goes on, he, he starts to become more, um, uh, I guess, uh, have a larger following in the late 60s and early 70s. Um, and here you, you place him uh, partly in the context of Indian uh, socialism. That's uh, kind of a political uh, standpoint of the time. Um, how, how and why did Rajneesh push back on these national patterns of socialism and what, what did he offer as an alternative? Well, in many ways, I'm arguing that Rajneesh was ahead of his time because he was critiquing sort of the socialist policies of India up till the 70s and 80s and calling for an embrace of capitalism long before it starts to really happen in the 1980s and 90s. And part of that was really his critique of, of Gandhi and Nehru, who he thought were keeping India enchained to poverty and to the past. And so he was one of the first voices calling for India to open up to the larger global marketplace and to American-style capitalism, which is basically what happens a couple of decades later. So in some ways, he was ahead of the curve. And... At, at the same time, he's starting to attract some wealthy businessmen from the Mumbai area. He also begins to attract a wider audience of Europeans and Americans. This is the late 60s, early 70s, when lots and lots of young people from the U.S. and the U.K. and Europe are flocking to India. And he's, he's, he's teaching this very kind of um, iconoclastic but also... Um, globally oriented message. It's bringing together Indian spiritual ideas with elements from Western psychology and psychoanalysis. And it really begins to start to appeal to a non-Indian audience starting in the 1970s. So he shifts from giving his teachings in Hindi to giving his teachings in English. And the movement really starts to grow in a big way in the early 70s. And this is where uh, he starts to develop uh, a place for this to happen, his, his ashram. Um, how did this place uh, bring together these kind of uh, – these intersections of Eastern spirituality and Western capitalism? Yeah, so they moved to Pune, which is um – at least at that time, was a smaller city outside of Mumbai, in part because uh, he had health problems and asthma and was looking for a place where the air quality was better and also looking for a place where they could start to build a, a new community. And it's at the same time that he's drawing more and more hippies and spiritual seekers from Europe and uh, the UK and the United States. And as new folks are coming in from outside and Rajneesh 
who is an incredibly eclectic reader, is reading more widely in Western philosophy and Western psychology, you see this really interesting hybrid blend of Eastern and Western spirituality. So they were known at the time as the Esalen of the East, referring to the Esalen Institute in uh, California, which also brought together Eastern spirituality with Western psychology. And many of the teachers at the ashram at that time had been trained at Esalen in things like Reikian therapy and uh, encounter groups and all that. So it became this really rich blend and kind of um, hybrid mix of lots of things coming out of Hindu and Buddhist traditions, uh, post-Freudian psychoanalysis, the works of Wilhelm Reich and others. And at the same time, they also began to more self-consciously embody a sort of market model by selling spiritual practices, um, openly displaying Rajneesh's wealth, flaunting gold watches and fancy cars and so forth. Um, and this is also where um, you show that this kind of program of spiritual sexuality becomes uh, kind of an important theme. Um, could you tell us a little bit about his teachings on sexuality and Tantra, um, perhaps where they fit into these kind of intellectual patterns of both South, South Asian and Western thought uh, that you kind of you've mentioned here? Yeah, one of the things that really drew me to Rajneesh is his work on Tantra, because that's an area that I've done a lot of research on myself. And I would argue that he's probably the most important figure in the transformation of Tantra in the 20th century from its more traditional forms, which are about esoteric ritual and acquisition of spiritual and material power, to something that's increasingly focused on sexuality. And as part of that, Rajneesh read widely in Freudian and post-Freudian psychoanalysis, especially the work of um, Wilhelm Reich, and kind of self-consciously brought together Western psychoanalytic ideas of sexuality, uh, especially Reich's work, seeing sex as the most powerful force in human nature, something that needed to be liberated, and bring that together with a kind of reinterpretation of South Asian Tantra, which became what he calls Neo-Tantra, or a form of Tantra that's more explicitly geared towards a Western audience. And which is, of course, what, how, which is what we ahead, see all yeah, over, yeah. which is what we see all over the shelves of Barnes and Noble and all over mm -hmm. Amazon.com today. So, I mean, that's how Tantra has come to be defined since uh, since the 70s. Rajneesh isn't the only figure in that, but I think he was the most influential. Yeah, and how how was uh, this kind of uh, spiritual sexual program kind of received at the time uh, among the people that were seeking him out in South Asia? Uh, that's a good question. So it was controversial for sure. And for many, especially conservative Indians, the combination of his attack on national icons like Gandhi and his embrace of sexuality was pretty shocking. And it's one reason that they leave India um, and go to the United States in the 1980s. But it was also incredibly attractive to some, and especially to um, American and European audiences, and it's still a, a key part of the Osho movement to this day. So it had both of those effects and receptions. 
And so uh, this is this is uh, kind of at, at this point when he comes to America, sets up a new community in Oregon. Um, so what what's going on in uh, in Oregon at, at this new space? What are the guiding principles of this uh, kind of utopian community? How was it developed and supported and ultimately uh, dis- dismantled? Yeah, so this is um, the, probably the most well-known but also most remarkable part of the whole story. So they left India for a couple of reasons. One, his comments about Gandhi and the embrace of sexuality and his general iconoclastic teachings had generated increasing criticism from the media and from governments. Then their charitable status was revoked, so they ended up owing several million dollars in taxes. So they leave India and first relocate to New Jersey and then to central Oregon, where they bought this large piece of ranch land, which at the time was not a particularly valuable piece of land. It was, you know, overgrazed desert land. But they were able to transform it pretty quickly into a huge utopian community. It's, I think, one of the most remarkable episodes in American spiritual history, taking this kind of worthless piece of land and transforming it into a space where they're doing organic farming at a time when no one in America knew what organic farming was. They're recycling almost everything at a time when no one in America recycled. They built a dam. They uh, reclaimed waterways, planted trees. So in a relatively short time, they took basically a piece of empty Oregon desert and made a, a utopian city. Now, um, what exactly was going on uh, in this community? Like, what kind of practices and uh, what people were attracted to being there? Well, it was an extension in many ways of what they were doing already in Pune in India, which is bringing together aspects of Hinduism and Buddhism and other Eastern philosophies and increasingly eclectic forms from all over Asia, together with things going on in the United States, like uh, Reikian therapy, uh, encounter groups. They were, and this is characteristic of the movement from the beginning to, and continuing to this day, um, incredibly eclectic in their practices. But at the same time, they're also working really hard. So the, the people I interviewed who were there at the time talked about um, the intensive hours they put into building this place, um, and they talked about it with fondness, like they were all working together in this kind of utopian project. So it was really a mix of, of all of those things. And then they started also organizing major festivals that brought in people from all over the world to um, participate in all these different events, too, which brought in uh, a huge amount of the revenue that they collected as well. Now, uh, I don't want to get too... Uh sensational here but uh the the uh, some of the activities there ultimately lead to the kind of demise of the community uh can you talk a little bit about what ended up happening here yeah so it it starts out as this quite progressive and successful utopian community and initially the the media in Oregon and around the United States observing it was impressed by this group of you know red-clad hippies who took a piece of overgrazed desert land and turned it into a utopian city. But it, it falls apart pretty quickly, and there are many reasons why, but the the main issue was disputes with the local 
community in, in Antelope, which was a small retirement community. So the, the ranch land that they bought was, it turns out, only zoned for a very small number of residents, whereas they wanted to bring thousands there to build what they called the new Buddha field. And so to try to get around that, they essentially engineered the takeover of the local town of Antelope, um, which didn't go over very well with the local residents, and it led to increasing hostilities between the two groups. The locals in Oregon started calling for the extermination of the red rats, as they put it. Um, arm sales in Oregon just went through the roof at that time. They made all sorts of T-shirts and posters uh, calling for uh, the nuking. said nuke the guru was one. Um, open hunting season on red rats was another one. And meanwhile, the... Uh, the Rajneesh community also became increasingly kind of paranoid. They started carrying guns, uh, Uzis, and uh, semi-automatic weapons. So increasing tensions escalated between the two sides. And then it really got out of hand when they tried to engineer the uh, elections in Wasco County. First, they had this program called Share a Home in which they bust in homeless people from all over the United States, from as far as Boston and New York City, to house them on the ranch and get them to get them to vote in the elections, hopes of swaying the votes. And then the most uh, outrageous acts were the, the bioterrorism attacks, in which they distributed salmonella bacteria on uh, local salad bars and produce stands to try to depress the turnout of the vote on the other side. And then it later turned out that they had even more ambitious plans they never carried out, which were to poison the entire water supply in the Dalles. And it, uh, so ultimately became the largest bioterror attack on U.S. soil. And once that came to light and the state attorney general began to investigate, the whole thing fell apart very, very quickly. Now, uh, part of what you do throughout the whole book is uh, kind of place these within – uh, the kind of social moment that they're uh, emerging from. And here, uh, what, what would you say uh, kind of Osho movement is can tell us about uh, kind of globalization in Reagan's America? Yeah, so this was part of the story that I was particularly fascinated by because on the one hand, the, the followers of Osho Rajneesh were extremely critical of Reagan and the U.S. government at that time. They would later argue that Osho had been poisoned by the Reagan administration. But at the same time, I argued that there's kind of a weird mirroring between the two, especially around neoliberalism and the embrace of the marketplace. So even though they were critical of Reaganism, in many ways what they were doing economically was a mirror of the embrace of the markets, privatization, uh, the notion that government is the problem and that the market will solve everything. Those are all kind of there in their movement at the same time that they're intensely hostile towards Reagan. Now, um, at this point, uh, Osho uh, returns to India, kind of uh, reestablishing a community there at his ashram. Um, and th this is where you say kind of the construction of this uh, Zorba the Buddha kind of ethos really becomes uh, increasingly um, central. Um, can, can you talk about um, what exactly this kind of Zorba the Buddha ethos 
looks like in, in, in practice and uh, how was it produced there upon returning to India? Yeah, so after the movement falls apart, um, Rajneesh is deported and eventually relocates to India and returns to the, the Pune community and then adopts the new title of Osho, which is a title of a, a Zen Buddhist priest and also a reference to the, the oceanic experience. And the community undergoes a pretty significant transformation during the 90s and 2000s. It really goes from being what had been um, a kind of hippie backpacker you know, ashram to what's now essentially a five-star luxury resort. So if you visit there today, you'll find swimming pools and what they call zenis courts, zen tennis courts, jacuzzis. The accommodations are really nice. The food is really good, but it's also really expensive. So the it, it's and it really um, caters to a very different clientele too. In the seventies, it was really uh, mecca for hippies and backpackers from all over to crash and stay as long as they could. Today, it really caters to the wealthy upper middle class Indian society and to wealthier. Europeans. So it's a very different kind of scene than it was in the 1970s. And and a lot of um, people who are around in the 70s really lament the, the turn that it's taken as it's gone from this more freewheeling, free love space to essentially a five-star luxury resort. And that's been a tension within the community, too, today. And this is... Uh, so Osho dies in 1990 um, as probably people know, the, the movement continues. Um, and here you kind of look at um, Osho's legacy among his followers. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, how has that uh, unfolded? And how has, the, uh, how has his legacy been entangled in, in both kind of legal and economic concerns since his death? Yeah, so a number of things happen after his death. There's several splits and fractures within the community. Probably the main one that I observed is a split between the community in Pune, where the, the Osho Resort is still today, which is mostly run by Brits and Europeans, and then another Osho community in New Delhi, which is mostly run by Indians. So there's a split that partly falls down along national lines and also about the interpretation of Osho's legacy. And a big part of that has been disputes over the claims to the copyright and trademark of Osho's work. So the Pune community has claimed repeatedly that it owns rights to the name Osho and to all of his works and to all the logos and so, so forth associated with that. Um, there's a large dispute over domain names and the circulation of his name and works on the internet. And then as part of that, there was a debate over his will, which the Pune community claims shows that the rights to his work belong to them. But then it was claimed, I think with some evidence, that the will may have been forged. So that was another huge part of the, the dispute. And um, one thing that I'm really interested in is how religious movements, as they become more and more absorbed into the networks of late capitalism or neoliberalism, they're sort of forced to 
engage in the same kinds of debates and disputes and legal controversies that all other entities do, including debates over intellectual property rights. So you've done a wonderful job kind of uh, laying out these kind of important features uh, kind of in this historical unfolding of uh, this man and this movement behind him. Um, and obviously in the book you go into great detail in, in lots of directions. Um, but uh, again, like you do in most of your work, you kind of uh, tie this together and kind of present it in a way that's that's valuable for uh, those of us who aren't necessarily interested in uh, things like Osho or Scientology. So uh, here you specifically kind of um, point to some of the, the patterns in 21st century uh, global spirituality. Um, so what, what would you say is Osho's role in kind of influencing contemporary spiritual movements? Um, you, you talk specifically about uh, how he points to New Age debates, um, mm -hmm. but we could also think about him in relation to questions of uh, religion and law, which you've also mm -hmm. looked at in other places. Yeah, so I, I really laid out four main points where I think his legacy has been important for thinking about religion and spirituality in the late 20th and early 21st century. The first is the rise of what's broadly called New Age spirituality, which is a huge category, but I think he was a key driver in the development of what we now commonly call the New Age, especially his eclecticism and his blending of East and West, which is a common feature of New Age spirituality, bringing together you know, meditation and yoga with different forms of psychology and psychotherapy. Uh, along with that, his wedding of materialism and spirituality, I think, is a common feature of many forms of the New Age, what some have called New Age capitalism. So I think, first, he's been a key figure in the whole rise of the New Age. Second, um, as I mentioned earlier, I think he's arguably the most important figure in the transformation of Tantra in the 20th and 21st century. Um, not only was he and were his works hugely influential, but many of his students have been some of the most important popular writers about uh, Tantra, such as Margot Anand, who wrote a couple of the most um, popular best-selling books on uh, Tantra and sexuality. So he's really helped reshape how we understand Tantra today in popular culture, where it's usually associated with sexuality. Then third, I think he's a key figure in uh, disputes over religion and intellectual property, which is a feature not only of the Osho movement and the arguments over his name and works, but you see it in disputes over Scientology, especially Scientology's esoteric advanced uh, levels of auditing. You see it in debates over um, attempts to trademark and copyright forms of yoga, most notably in Bikram yoga. So it raises this whole question, which I think is becoming increasingly central, which is, can you trademark spiritual ideas and practices? I think we're still wrestling with that and trying to figure that out today. And then um, lastly, I, I think he's really key to thinking about how religion functions in the world today in relation to globalization and capitalism. And I, th I think the key point that I really wanted to drive home at the end is that it's too easy simply to dismiss Osho Rajneesh as simply a capitalist sellout. I think that's 
an easy argument to make, but I think it's too simplistic. And what I wanted to do is really to highlight what Arjun Apadurai calls the split character of globalization. That is, that globalization can create both new forms of community that can be really powerful and interesting, even as movements become absorbed into the logics of consumer capitalism. And I think with the Osho movement, you see both of those things. They did remarkable things building new forms of community, both in India and then in the United States, at least briefly. But then those really interesting social experiments were ultimately undone. And I would argue they were undone in large part because of their embrace of capitalism. Well, it's it's a wonderful book, Hugh. I hope uh, this will become uh, one that's read within kind of the broader field of religious studies. Um, I'm sure you're working on some fascinating stuff now. Can you tell us a little bit about things you might have kind of in the works? Yeah, I have two big projects right now. One is um, a comparative book that I've been working on, seems like forever, which is a book on religion and secrecy, in which I want to look at different modalities of religious secrecy, and then a, a series of examples that would illustrate those. So I want to look at not just obvious things like the way in which religion and secrecy work in violence and terrorism, but the way in which secrecy can be a way of ironically advertising or adorning religious practices. So I want to lay out kind of like five or so modalities of religion and secrecy that would be paired with an example to illustrate each. And I, that's the sort of big project that I'm working on. And then the other project I'm working on is uh, an ethnographic study of living Tantra in India. I've written a lot about the history of Tantra and then the way in which it's been transformed and reinterpreted and misinterpreted in the Western context. But the project I want to work on next is a more on-the-ground ethnographic study of what Tantra actually looks like in lived practice today, mainly in the region of Assam and Northeast India, which is historically often cited as one of the original heartlands or homelands of Tantra. So there's a, there's a lot of really good scholarship on Tantra right now, but there's almost no ethnographic literature on how it's actually lived and practiced today. So that's the that's the more on-the-ground project that I want to do. Great. Well, good luck, Hugh. I, uh, I hope you get some time off to, to get going on this. Sure. It's been really fun speaking with you, and I'm flattered that you're interested in my work and what I've been writing about. That was my conversation with Hugh Urban about Zorba the Buddha, Sex, Spirituality, and Capitalism in the Global Osho Movement, published with the University of California Press in 2016. Thanks for listening to another episode of New Books in Religion. We'll catch you next time.